Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 53, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And our second episode of 2017. And I just want to say, by the way, thank you for your new listeners of the Retro Hour. Yeah, we've been getting loads of tweets and loads of kind of Facebook messages from new people. Thanks so much. Now, if you are new to the show, first of all, welcome. Where have you been for the last year? Get caught up. 52 Uh, episodes to listen to, guys. There's quite a lot, isn't there, to get through. Uh, But the way the show works is that Ravi and I run through the big tech and retro stories of the week, and then the second half of the show, and, you know, we work so hard to get these guests on the show. I think it's fair to say every week we bring you a legend of the video games and computer industry. Yeah, and this week we've got someone who's amazing. It's Fergus McNeil. Now, this guy started doing text adventures, getting onto stuff with Terry Pratchett. You know, he did the first Discworld text game. And then he went into stuff like Carmageddon. So (laughs) this is a a, a completely kind of mixed interview, and it's really interesting. It's so... I mean, talking about Carmageddon, I remember, you know, that was was banned, wasn't it? It was talked about the House of Lords and stuff. Yeah, yeah, a very controversial game, that was. It was, I mean, even more so than GTA, I think, in the late 90s, that game. Yeah, well, the main point was running over pedestrians, wasn't it? (laughs) Ladies with zipper frames and stuff, I remember, yeah. So this is such an interesting interview, definitely worth hanging around for that. Fergus McNeil on the Retro Hour in around 20 minutes from now. Now, of course, this show would not be possible without your very generous support. Now, uh, every week, we tell you we've got a little tip jar. If you ever want to leave a little donation, all you've got to do is head to theretrohour.com. Any donations you make all go back into the running of the show. And, uh, you know, you guys... Help us keep this show going. You know, obviously, we've been doing this a year now, so this month, everything's due for renewal. Yeah. So <laughs> this is really appreciated, guys. And this week, I want to say a massive thank you to Paul Edwards. We do woo. Edwin Helland. And Michael Keefe. Who've all made donations at theretrohour.com. Thank you so much, guys. That is much appreciated. And you know what? We're not all take, take, take. No, we're also give, give, give. <laughs> and we've got a competition, well, a giveaway. It's a personalised copy by the Oliver Twins of the story of the Oliver Twins, legendary British programmers. Now, obviously, we're talking Dizzy. Oh, yes, definitely Dizzy. Working with Codemasters, Ghostbusters too. they worked on as well. And they've just brought out this new book. It's called The Story of the Oliver Twins, Let's Get Dizzy. Now, what we're offering in this competition is not just a normal copy of the book. This is actually signed to you from the Oliver Twins with a little personalised message in there. Yeah, that's totally unique. Yeah, I think this could be a bit of valuable memorabilia in the future. Actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you want to win this, all you got to do is head to our website, theretrohour.com, and answer this question. This incredibly hard question. Who is Dizzy's girlfriend? A, Princess Peach, B, Daisy, or C, Amy? Now, anyone that's, uh, well, I was going to say, ever played the Dizzy game, ever played the computer game, <laughs> can probably answer that question. So all you got to do, you've got a week left to answer this. Um, I did actually get the wrong day of the week when I said when it was going to close last week. It finishes on Saturday, the 21st of January. It is a Saturday night at midnight. What we're going to do after that is pick out just one person completely at random. We've got a random number generator. And if it's you, you'll win a signed copy of the Oliver Twins' new book. So all you got to do is get the terms and conditions and enter that competition right now. You've got a week left at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into this week's news stories and the interview with Fergus, uh, we just want to put a little appeal out there for a computer club that's been running for, what, about 30 years? This has been going on. 30 years, it's nearly as old as me, this computer club. And it's based in the Herefordshire area. It's uh, Wellwyn Hatfield Computer Club. And, you know... They're kind of not getting that many members at the moment, so they really want to get a boost and, you know, keep this going. It's been 30 years. So if you guys visit www.whcc.co.uk 
And you could check them out. And I think, you know, just having computer clubs still going, I mean, obviously a lot of stuff's done online these days, but there is nothing like getting together with a group of guys and nerding out, is there? Well, you know, if I want something fixed, mm-hmm. I'll look on YouTube these days and there can be some awful, <laughs> awfully wrong, inaccurate stuff. Nothing mm-hmm. beats going and meeting someone, you know, discussing hardware and kind of learning about it. It's great. And even support as well. I mean, I've been to, you know, user groups before and if you've got a problem with the machine, there's always guys there that know how to fix it and do it there rather than sending it away somewhere. And... Yeah, definitely. So uh, support these guys and check them out if you're in Herefordshire. Absolutely. Right then, let's get into this week's news stories. And this kind of follows on quite nicely from something we mentioned last week. Now, we're talking about that first ever Nintendo NES advert that was found in America. Do you remember that last week? Yeah, yeah, and you you were loving it. Well, this was um, a NES advert that was in a magazine back in 1984, and it was a little teaser for the original um, Nintendo Entertainment System. And it looked really cool. The evolution of a species is now complete. Um, See Nintendo unveil home entertainment's future on January the 5th of the 8th, 1985. Now, this was printed way back in the day, and coincidentally, after we mentioned that last week, Nintendo have actually done the same advert pretty much for... Their new console, the Switch. Do you think they're listening? <laughs> That's, oh, Dan mentioned it. it. Yeah. <laughs> so what it is, it's pretty much an identical copy of that same font and everything as well. Uh, obviously, the dates have been changed, and they've got like the Wii there, the original NES on top, and then. They've got the Switch kind of covered in red velvet as well. So. Yeah, that's not the NES Mini. <laughs> it looks a bit bigger. But yeah, it says 2017, 2006, and 1986 at the top. I think that's awesome, though. I do question how they're going to... Because, you know, in the original advert, they've got the consoles balanced on top of the telly. How are you going to do that with, like, an LCD screen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is definitely a Photoshop job <laughs> with this big CRT on the top. But you notice Nintendo are really, like, I think they're looking to their past at the moment and really appreciating it and having some fun with it as well, aren't they? So, Well, definitely. They know that's where the money is, you know, all their kind of franchises and stuff. Yeah. That's why they're so popular. I'm going to get a Switch as well when it comes out. Oh, yeah. I'm going to come around and play it. I'm not getting one. <laughs> I have no Nintendo on my house, shockingly. Yeah, you want a Wii U now, though, don't you know, that they're uh, going to be obscure? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone I know suddenly is like, didn't want the Wii U when it was out, but now it's going to be a fail system. That could be valuable in 20 years. Yeah. I'll buy one of them. <laughs> the next Virtual Boy. <laughs> so if you want to see the advert, we'll pop it at theretrohour.com and also on our Facebook page as well. Now, obviously Christmas was a couple of weeks ago now, but um, this is quite an interesting story about Apple and Atari designers. Stuff that they got for Christmas... Back in the old days. Yeah, and I always find it kind of interesting that, uh, you know, people like Steve Wozniak, what did they get as a kid? And what inspired them to go on and create the Apple One? Well, looking at this article, it's on techrepublic.com. And uh, there is, you know, some really cool, like, classic pictures here as well. We've got the author unwrapping his uh, Atari VCS, you know, 2600 back in, like, the late 70s. Nice. And the talk about was, like you mentioned then, um, was when he was eight years old. He actually got a ham radio transmitter kit and receiver kit for Christmas. And apparently, he used to like sleep with this thing. He was obsessed with it. Yeah, well, ham radio must have been like a massive communications device then. And a kit as well. That would have yeah. meant he would have had to build it, you know, at that age. So, Well, I remember like when I was at school, my friend Ricky had like a CB radio. Yeah. And he used to go in his house. I think his dad got him it like... He was this guy, I've talked about him on the show before, that had like, you no, know, the, the CDI. His dad was like a single dad and he, he used to buy some like every gadget he wanted, you know what I mean? <laughs> I went around one day and he had like, you know, this CB in his room. We'd go over on his lunch break and he'd be chatting to like, you know, dodgy sounding truck drivers. And things. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, But there is something just magical about, you know, um, you know, communicating with another person one-to-one over the air. It's, it's Totally. And I also think it's kind of interesting because imagine if someone hadn't given Steve Wozniak that radio kit, would we have the Apple One? Yeah. You know, and I think 
presents that are given to kids kind of influence the direction kids are going to go. What did you get as a child, Dan, that uh, really kind of got you into techie stuff? Well, again, it was my computer, I guess. You know, I got a Commodore Plus 4 when I was like, you know, seven years old with my parents. So, yeah, without that, I never, you know, wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. I got this um, really strange electronics kit from Maplings where you could kind of build different devices. One was an AM transmitter. I built that and it never worked. I, <laughs> I wrapped the wire all the way around my garden to get a big enough loop to transmit. It didn't work. And I had... I think I made a little alarm clock that mm. when the sun would come up, it would tweet. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, like a light sensor on it, did it? Yeah, and okay. it just had a little beeper that would go beep, 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 like a bird. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, that was it. <laughs> I remember like at school we'd do like uh, build like Morse radio devices and we'd build like oh, radio nice. receivers. But, you know, obviously this thing is probably what taught was how to solder and everything, isn't it? So Apple today would probably not exist if his parents didn't get him that for Christmas. Yeah, totally. That's insane. Um, Al- Alcorn from Atari, um, he was given a chemistry set. When he was seven years old. I think we all had one of them back in the day, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just the multicoloured like test tubes, wasn't it, with all those mysterious like powders in there? Yeah, I had this weird crystal growing <laughs> kit and it always kind of looked like dodgy drugs after you made it. <laughs> you, you could have turned into what from Breaking Bad? Yeah, like, yeah. That was it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you do want to see a bit more about these, uh, they're really interesting. Uh, we'll pop those in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, you know, now that we're talking about Christmas and stuff, uh, obviously it was a couple of weeks ago. It wasn't all joyful at Christmas, though. Yeah, it was a bit sad. It was the uh, final issue of Micromart magazine, and they've been going for around 31 years. Yeah, well, Micromart, I mean, it was a, it's a weekly computer magazine, one that I'd always buy, and as long as I can remember, you know, going into newsagents since I was a little toddler, I always remember seeing that on the shelves and it not being there now because the final issue came out between Christmas and New Year. Yeah, and... ho- hopefully you might be able to pick it up in shops now <laughs> if it's still there on the shelves. But There's know. nothing to replace it with, so There's, they kind yeah. of leave it out, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, for me, it's also, in more recent years, it's been really close to my heart because, obviously, you know, we're fans of Retro and the Amiga as well in particular. Mm. Um, and it is kind of the last mainstream magazine that had an up-to-date Amiga section in there every two weeks. Yeah. And that was written by Sven Harvey, who's actually on the phone right now. Hello, Sven. Hello. How are you doing, guys? Very good, thank you. But what a Great. sad day, Micromart coming to an end. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, uh, it actually first published in 1985, so it was basically 31 years old when, when the axe fell, unfortunately. Of course, starting off as Microcomputer Mart back then. Um, so it literally came out the same year as the Amiga did. Yeah, it's as old as me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It must have been like that. Must have been one of the, if not the longest running computer magazine in Britain. Then, well, it's interesting because um, when it hit issue five hundred, it hit um, the news as being the longest running magazine. Then, uh, yeah, so it's it's a bit crazy. It's it's quite so many issues, but of course, with it being weekly for the majority of its run, um, that, that's an awful lot of text that's that's gone out there in that magazine. And what like you know changes it must have seen over thirty years? I mean, you know, when it started, you're talking like Commodore sixty four and Spectrum news. Yeah, exactly. And of course, it started off essentially as as like the uh, every other Mart type magazine, and it was literally just pages and pages and pages of people trying to sell their old gear. Um, so it was it. it how would that changed over the time? So in the last issue, I think there may have been two or three pages of that, and then the rest of it was editorial content. And the very early issues had virtually no editorial content whatsoever, and reviews kind of grew in it and so on and so forth. 
It's interesting because I always used to look in Micromart as well for kind of good systems and, you know, people would be selling certain stuff that wouldn't yeah. be sold in other magazines there as well. It, it's interesting that even even on the PC side of things, they often had adverts from companies you don't didn't see adverts from anywhere else, like little companies who built PCs for you and things like that and discount companies and so on and so forth. So it's quite intriguing. Now, I got involved originally... Uh, after Simon Plum's Amiga Addiction page had run for a little while, and I do, I think it was about a year and a half, something like that, I ran for, and I jumped in somewhere. I think it was about issue five hundred and twenty-eight mm-hmm. when I did my first piece, which was a, a two-page one-off thing, uh, which was in February of nineteen ninety-nine, and then by August of that year, Amiga Mart had started, which was basically me every week at that point giving people updates of what was happening in the Amiga side of things. So by the time the magazine had finished, it had been 17 years of doing the Amiga Mart in the magazine. So that that was the changes in that alone were, were huge. Yeah, I always found it amazing that even to the point of, you know, last week I could go into Asda and get a copy of a magazine that had an Amiga section, in, but also it had a Linux section and it had a small Mac section and a retro section. It was really nice the way they did that little Mart kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's always been a bit fanzine-y in a way. Um, I know the guys who are behind it have no qualms about that because that's what gave it its unique sort of flavour to it. But it's interesting that the guy who got me involved in working on that magazine was Simon Brew, who was the editor in uh, when I was first brought on. But he was also my editor at school because originally I worked with him on a magazine called Feedback, which was the school fanzine for computing. No way. Um, and <laughs> my first review I th- uh, was actually Commodore 64 stuff for him. So it was basically when this... Amiga Addiction had disappeared and people were clamoring for an Amiga page. He actually contacted me to to do Amiga stuff again. So it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you were doing the Amiga section weekly, probably only until about a year or two back then it went fortnightly, didn't it? I mean, yeah. was that kind of a hard sell to the magazine to keep an Amiga section going in like, you know, 2016? It's interesting. It was that every time they tried to pull me and pull uh, the Amiga Mart page we got so many letters and so many emails they didn't do it <laughs> the amiga fanboys were <laughs> keeping yeah. it solid yeah. it was like all i had to do is mention i was on, I went on facebook they're trying to they're trying to stop me again <laughs> like huge amounts of messaging coming in i was just like yeah there we go that that sorts it for another six months <laughs> in, in, in the end they just closed down the whole magazine but we can't win <laughs> yeah yeah can't win shut the magazine it's the only way we're going to stop the amiga mark going out um but yeah it was it was it was it's quite touching actually how how many people were up in arms every time we looked at a, a threat um so that that is a something I'll, I'll probably always carry with me now well i um i looked at it was twitter i think just before christmas when the guys in the micromart office who were on their last day there and they were about to uh nip off to the pub you know after doing their final issue i mean you know i, I had a very heavy heart reading that i mean something that's been running for so long coming to an end is always sad but i mean when did you find out the news and how um, well, I actually got an email from Simon Brew uh, because he was actually running the company of providing the content for the magazine by that point. It was basically, I, I actually got it as an email through to my phone at work one, at my normal day job one day. And I was like, well, that sucks. <laughs> 
do you uh, have any plans yourself to continue doing Amiga writing? Um, well, I'm keeping the Facebook page that I created for for Amiga Mart running, and I'm putting news on there at the moment um, when when I find out. Uh, so people are following that a little bit. I am going to be doing a bit more of Amiga stuff on the Geekology channel on YouTube at some point because uh, I've always felt that I couldn't really delve into the Amiga side of things while I was writing Amiga Marts because uh, it seemed like a bit of a conflict of interest um, so that's a possibility but there's also Den of Geek uh, which is actually run again by Simon Brew so you might see some stuff on there I've done some Star Trek stuff in the past with Den of Geek so they do cover computing and, and uh, video gaming as well so it'd be interesting to see if anything crops up on there keep your eyes peeled well Sven do keep <laughs> us in the loop with what you're doing we'll obviously uh, mention it on the show and put it in our show notes and, and thanks so much for the mentions in Micromart as well yeah I, I know problem. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully you've had, had some uh, listeners and uh, your viewers to your YouTube channels as a result Absolutely, it's much appreciated, and uh, you know I will miss. You know, it was always a magazine that you picked up when you were in Asda just doing your shop, and you think, oh, I'll throw that in the trolley, you know, every week. Yeah, I'll yeah. doing that. So yeah, it's just it's just amazing we managed to keep the Amiga column in there for so long. It was it was it was really really an honour to uh, be you know writing a page in in a mainstream computer magazine anywhere in the world. Frankly, it's the only one that was left that was covering anything Amiga related. So. That, that was cool. Yeah, amazing work doing that, Sven. Yeah, thank marvellous you. Marvellous effort. Cheers. And uh, raise a glass of something cold to MicroMart this month. Will do, absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much, everybody. Now, do you remember something really odd in the 90s? I remember you, lots odd in the 90s. Not, lot, lots <laughs> odd in the 90s, but on the magazine kind of vibe. Um, there's been this images going around of Yugoslavian cover girls, and this was kind of the most boring <laughs> subject possible and they had to try and make it exciting and appeal to people <laughs> but you know you've got some rather nice looking girls sitting in front of copies of word perfect <laughs> um, <laughs> you know really old 486s and stuff and uh it kind of really reminded me of this 90s culture that you'd have in you don't get it in magazines now you'd have this kind of Sexy girls and computers to try and sell them. <laughs> well, so what these are is uh, they're basically computer mags that have got, yeah, like you said, an old uh, like 286 with WordPerfect and then a model posing, you know, provocatively yeah, in front it, of it. It's like a, a, a really hot model sitting on a photocopier. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> the two complete opposite things. You know? you know what, though? I'm looking at this and you know that picture of Bill Gates where he's looking all seductive with the disc. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, it's got it in my mind. Yeah, <laughs> so if you want to check out um, the, the Yugoslav and take on uh, getting magazines more exciting. <laughs> but you know we'll what? have the link in the show notes. Even stuff like, uh, you know, Stuff Magazine and T3 and that, often they, you know, put like models and stuff on the front of the magazines. And uh, I read why they do that once, actually. And apparently it's because if they've got like a model on the front of the mag, WH Smith will put it in the lifestyle section rather than like with the nerdy mags in the computer bit. Oh, okay. So, do, how many of these models actually know that they're sitting there with like, you know, Battle Chess <laughs> or, or ZX Spectrum? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they get imposed in that, like, you know, superimposed into it after. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a nice little 
culture clash there between the two. Yeah, I would have loved to have been in the meetings. So we're going to get to hold like three CRT monitors on like reins. You know, <laughs> yeah, right? that's it. Very yeah. bizarre. So yeah, if you do want to see those, we'll pop those in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Right, thank you for checking out episode number 53. Don't forget, if you want to get a signed copy of the Oliver Twins new book, The Story of the Oliver Twins, Let's Get Dizzy, signed and personalised to you. You've got a week left to enter this competition at theretrohour.com. Answer this question. Who is Dizzy's girlfriend? A, Princess Peach, B, Daisy or C, Amy? You've got a week left to do it. It finishes on Saturday, the 21st of January. Enter that at theretrohour.com. Right then, time for this week's special guest. What an interesting one this week. We've got Fergus McNeil. And we'll catch you next Friday. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome this week's very special guest, Fergus McNeil. Thank you for coming on. Hi there. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Well, Fergus, let's get your story right from the beginning then. Let's go all the way back. What was your first experience with a computer then? Where did it all begin? Wow, that was a long time ago. I got a ZX81 as a Christmas present. Um, and I really liked the idea of, of being able to play games, but it wasn't really till I got a Spectrum, uh, a ZX Spectrum shortly afterwards that I, I kind of finally started really getting into games. And I liked all the the old classics, the, the kind of the Cyan um, games like Hungry Horace and stuff like that. Um, and I guess the the real, I mean, I was always a big fan of, of arcade games as well, but I guess the, the formative moment in so many ways was when I first played The Hobbit uh, yeah. by Melbourne House, um, which was the first really kind of impressive text adventure I'd ever played. Um, and I just sat there totally blown away by the fact that you could have a game where there were real characters doing stuff in a story. And wow, wouldn't it be cool if I could make something like that? So did you start programming around that time then? Was it very early on that you picked up coding? Yeah, I mean, I started off uh, typing in uh, magazine listings to, to get Space Invaders games and stuff, and then I would, I would modify them to make them, you know, different and more the way I wanted them. Um, and then I was actually doing my computer studies O-level at school, and uh, at that time, part of the computer studies O-level involved doing a project. And for my project, I said, I, I reckon I could do a text adventure. So I actually did write um, a really, really bad, really, really small text adventure in BBC Basic, heaven help me. Um, and um, and that persuaded me that um, I would never, ever, ever do that again. And from then on, I would use the quill um, uh, because it made everything so much easier. Well, I remember the, those early adventure games, stuff like Zork and you know, the Infocom games and that kind of thing. And oh, I just yeah. thought writing those must have been really difficult before like, you know, interpreters came along because you had to you know, account for every different combination of players' moves and even doing the keywords and all that kind of thing must have been a big task. It was a big task. And uh, I think the... Uh, the the challenge, I mean, in terms of coding, it, it wasn't really difficult to to put stuff together. Once once you'd kind of thought it through um, and played a few games, you could quite easily go through it and kind of create something a bit clunky and basic. But um, I think the the big challenge uh, was always much more about trying to predict what the players were wanting to do. Um, and to throw in little interesting uh, quirks and, and side adventures and unexpected things for them to make them feel like the world was coming alive. Because when I was playing 
The Hobbit. Anybody who's played The Hobbit will remember that there was a character called Thorin, and he would occasionally sit down and sing about gold. Um, And that message became very repetitive after a while. But the first couple of times you saw it, you thought, "My goodness me! There's a, you know, this is kind of just something that's happening. It's 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 kind of random. The character can wander off. Uh, characters can react to what I do. So I always wanted to try and and think of little things to put in games. But to be honest, because I was a teenager at the time, uh, I, I I tended to just basically want to set up gags because as soon as I started doing the more humorous games uh everything for me was was just about setting up stupid um bad taste jokes um and silly gags and things like that and uh, and playing jokes on the players um and that's kind of how the delta four games started uh it kind of was born out of initially a desire to do some parody work but then it kind of really became just having fun and, and kind of joking around with the players in a text adventure environment which was which was great fun so it's kind of translating that British humour and satirical style into a game. Yeah, and doing it um, against a you know uh, a Tolkien-esque backdrop or a Robin Hood backdrop or whichever particular uh, whichever particular kind of genre I was parodying at the time, uh, which was a bit strange, but I think they kind of worked and people did seem to enjoy playing them. Yeah, they always they were kind of like a quest because one of your first titles was uh, the quest for a holy joystick. Oh uh, yeah, that was um, uh, that was that was early on, uh, and um, it was a strange situation because at that time I knew nobody in the games industry. No, I couldn't get games reviewed. Uh, I was trying to sell uh, kind of early. Uh, more more kind of straight text adventures. I was trying to sell them via mail order and um, uh, having no success in getting anything reviewed um, because a lot of the magazines just said, look, you're a kid, you're, you're writing these games in your bedroom, uh, you know, why would we review your games? So I did Quest for the Holy Joystick partly because I was very annoyed and it featured uh, early computer shows like the ZX Microfare. It featured some of the magazines who, um, uh, who you know, kind of like were uh, main computer magazines at the time. It featured a, a whole bunch of in-jokes for the industry, if you like. Um, and because of that, it, it got reviewed. It finally got people to actually pay attention to, to, to that kind of comedy uh, kind of thing going on. And I got reviews just because I had the magazine offices in the game. And that taught me a valuable lesson, which is be very, very nice to journalists. <laughs> what were your parents thinking of, uh, you know, what you're doing with computers at the time? Then did they understand it? Did they support you? What were they thinking? Uh, they liked the fact that it was quiet and didn't create a huge amount of mess. Um, they uh, very much believed that uh, it was acceptable as a hobby, but I should definitely get a real job soon. So I think they were they were fine about it until such time as I dropped out of college because I I, I got a contract to do another game because I, I, I had a publisher by this time. And at the point when I had a publisher, I took that seriously. I wanted to, to kind of deliver games when I was supposed to. And I couldn't do that and continue on on my A-level college course. And I think my parents were a little bit concerned about uh, the idea of me dropping out of college. And so was I, to be fair, because the college I was at had a, a female-to-male ratio of something like four to one. So it was the best college course you could have possibly ever been on if you were a teenage boy. Well, um, your first kind of major release was the Dark Star trilogy, and that included illustrations. That must have really helped 
get the story going, you know? Well, I mean, the, the kind of the illustrations were, were largely driven by, um, there was a, a program called um, the Illustrator, which went alongside the quill and allowed you to put in simple procedural vector, vector graphics uh, into games. And I think trying to work in that kind of vector environment would have been great if I had been a, if I had been a slightly better artist but I really really I, I could never say that that doing kind of those vector graphics was was kind of my strong point so I think if people found the graphics bearable then I think they were very kind and I appreciate that <laughs> But, you know, when graphics did start to come in, I mean, you know, it was quite technically impressive. But I think there is something about having just a pure text adventure that really gets your imagination going, though, isn't there? Absolutely. And also it was a question of size. I mean, gosh, it sounds really old fashioned now, doesn't it? Sort of talking about 48K and worrying about fitting things into kind of, you know, about 29K or whatever the available size for a game database was. But we had so little space. Um, the early games didn't even have text compression. Um, and that was... That was difficult because for every graphic, you had to cut so much uh, in terms of text and locations and funny little messages. So I never wanted to sacrifice too much of the story um, in order to give away graphics. But in the end, that that sort of drove innovation. And that, that's why I started doing multi-part games. Um, in fact, I think I'm fairly sure, I need to check with Gilsoft, but I'm fairly sure I was the first person to do a multi-part text adventure certainly with a quill uh and, and doing multi-part stuff allowed me basically to put graphics in and as much text as i wanted and i could just waffle and waffle and waffle but again it, it kind of it, it made for a for a more rounded game experience um and it, it enabled me to have a lot more fun doing them well as technology obviously progressed and games got more complex did that kind of affect the way you converted a, like a writer's text into into a game like a story into a game yeah i think being honest, um, uh, I think I was never particularly happy. I always w wished I'd had a lot more time to uh, to do stuff. I mean, obviously, uh, now that I'm writing novels, um, which is effectively like a text adventure, except I decide what the player does, um, uh, I'm, I'm amazed uh, at how much effort goes into creating one storyline. Back in those days, you were kind of creating lots and lots of different possibilities. And... The, the kind of branching narrative that you had in those text adventures meant that you were really trying to write lots and lots of little things for the player to explore, but you were always trying to sort of steer them through the main, the main kind of um, uh, sort of highlights of the of, of the ongoing sort of longer arc of the story. So there was there was a lot of stuff going on there, but I think it helped. With my earlier titles, it helped me that I was working with well-known, established stories like the Robin Hood story or, um, or the, the Hobbit story or, or things like that. Because if you're parodying uh, a plot line that people understand, then the player is kind of in on the gag and they're, they're working with you to kind of like, oh, I can't wait to get to the next bit. I'm going to see what happens with the dragon or we're going to see what happens with Maid Marian or whatever. You can kind of have some fun with those sort of things, but the, but the player's okay about following the, the path that you want them to take through the story. I think one of the things I was always... I was always keen to explore more, and I sort of did this a little bit in some of the later games, was 
more of an open world text adventure. But again, the, the, the challenge with, with an open world text adventure is, I guess, similar to many of the challenges that face um, kind of contemporary open world game designers, which is how do you keep it interesting? Because the player doesn't necessarily go the way you expect and you can't then set up gags or set up emotional moments or whatever it is. So there's always a trade-off between how much freedom you give the player uh, versus how much you kind of constrain them so that you can give them those those more entertaining story moments. I guess that's 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 just always going to be a trade-off between interactive versus linear storytelling. Yeah, I always kind of thought that, you know, text adventures were, that they reminded me, you know, there's books you got when you were really young and it'd be like, you know, you can choose what you do next, turn to page, whatever, and it was kind of like, those books look complex enough. Choose your I, own adventure. Yeah, it was like yeah. those, but obviously... They're great, yeah, I love those. The fighting <laughs> fantasy books. Yeah, those. Oh, <laughs> I'd love to write a fighting fantasy book, maybe one day. <laughs> with, with some of your titles, uh, they were amazingly funny. Board of the Rings with the Boggets and Grandal and uh, Robin of Sherlock. Did you get any um, copyright um, claims or anything? We were actually very fortunate. I mean, to, to, to be fair, when I, and this would have been when I was like a, I would have been about 15 years old when I first wrote off to, um, uh, to try and get the rights to do Lord of the Rings because I was, I was young and naive and stupid and thought that they might just say yes. And, of course, I never heard back from them. But I loved, I loved the whole Tolkien universe. Um, and and I, I think although I, I did a lot of parody work in that area, um, it was always born out of a deep, deep love and respect for the original work. I think the one that was weirdest, though, was Robin of Sherlock. And I still, to this day, cannot come up with a reasonable explanation for why we would blend Robin Hood and Sherlock Holmes into one medieval pipe-smoking universe. But I think I was drinking an awful lot at the time, and it probably was one of those things that seemed like a good idea at three o'clock in the morning, and just nobody ever talked me out of it. So um, I, I think uh, I think some of the stuff was just so weird and out there that that nobody was really worried. It wasn't as if I was passing off. It was always it was always just parody or very very strange. Well, uh, one thing I, I was also into Tolkien a lot, learning the Elvish alphabet and stuff as a kid. <laughs> Another franchise I was really into was um, Terry Pratchett's Discworld, and you uh, managed to score his first text adventure game. How did you do that? That was that was probably one of the most enjoyable periods of of my career at, at any point. It was just phenomenally great. Um, we were um, doing some stuff uh, with. Um, uh, Macmillan Group, and um, I was asked, literally, just you know, sort of uh, asked in a meeting one day, "Are there any book brands, um, uh, kind of you know, titles, authors, anything like that that you can think of that would make an interesting game that you'd like us to to see if we can get hold of?" Um, uh, I had just read *The Color of Magic*, uh, which is the first of the Discworld novels, and um, I said, "Well, there's this guy called Terry Pratchett," and um, Lo and behold, um, Macmillan being a, you know, a subsidiary of a, of a large book publisher, they were able to actually arrange um, uh, a meeting. And, and about two or three weeks later, I was getting off the train at Bristol Temple Mead Station. Terry Pratchett picked me up in his car and off we went for lunch. And um, we went off to this bizarre country pub somewhere down in the West Country near his house. Um, and we had the strangest ever pub lunch I've ever had because we were sitting in a kind of like a large conservatory trying to have a conversation in whispers because 
surrounding all the the kind of conservatory tables where where lunch was being served were all these wingback big old armchairs with retired army general type characters with huge <laughs> moustaches all snoring in the sun uh, and it was the most surreal amazingly weird lunch ever um, and I kind of thought this is Terry Pratchett this is kind of this is the kind of life he lives and then we went back to his house and it's all stacked up with comics piled up against the walls and carnivorous plants and tortoises and and I thought yeah this is this this guy really is is everything you'd, you'd hope that he would be did he have um, his big hat was on really good fun to work with him really good fun did he have his big hat on at all he didn't wear his big hat very much in those days no um i kind of i i i, I kind of i met him in the in the in the pre-hat era uh but he was still absolutely 100 percent entertaining and we kind of met up again a few times uh you know throughout the the subsequent years um and um the world's a sadder and emptier place without him in it what did Terry think of the technology then? Did he was he was he into computer games? Hugely. I mean, he was a big gamer and um, a big technology fan as well. Um, one of the weirdest things about going to his house was the fact that he had a, a couple of old ZX eighty ones hooked up to run the climate control system for his greenhouse for his carnivorous plants. So he was very much au fait with tech and games and things like that. Um, and um, uh, he would he would kind of phone up in the evenings and kind of we'd be chatting through different ideas for for things to put into the game um, and um, it, he he was kind of I guess in in the same way as I said earlier wishing that there were more possibilities I mean we made a four part game for uh, Color of Magic and it really wasn't nearly enough because I just wanted to put in so much of his dialogue you know all the kind of the stuff with death and Rincewind and Two Flower. You want to have that stuff in there. And also his narrative voice is just inspired. You want to get that in there. Oh, my goodness me. I, I just wish that the computers had more memory available so that we could have put more stuff in there because the ideas he was coming up with were, were, were just great. And I would have loved to put more Terry in there. But, um, yeah, great, great project to work on. And he was a top, top guy. Well, um, it must have really kind of solidified your reputation, that game. Uh, it, it kind of, uh, it, it was much more about him than me. I mean, I, I was kind of very, very pleased to have the opportunity to work with him. But all the good stuff in that game all came from Terry. I just literally sat there and, and kind of worked as an editor almost in, in terms of uh, compressing his stuff down into, into a game. I don't want to take credit for, for, for any of his stuff because he was a, a complete genius. But it was certainly an honor. Um, and um, I think it, maybe it brought more people into the idea of, of humorous text adventure and humorous games in general, and that's a good thing. Well, you mentioned about, you know, extra storage space and having more room to do things. Obviously, you know, when the early 90s rolled around, um, CD-ROM came along, and I guess that must have been quite a game-changer for you. It was, yeah. There was very much a move towards um, uh, people doing interactive movies. That was kind of the buzzword of the time. Oh, we've got to do interactive movies. Interactive movies will be, you know, the future. Let's do that. People were spending vast amounts of money on uh, filming things and and kind of doing you know huge kind of big production stuff that that traditionally you wouldn't have seen in games. And the first the first kind of major release, I guess, that that I was involved with um, in that was. Um, with SCI doing The Lawnmower Man, which was an interactive movie adaptation of the Lawnmower Man movie with um, uh, Pierce Brosnan. So we kind of had the rights to this uh, kind of cool Hollywood movie, and we had to make an interactive movie game 
based on absolutely nothing. We had, you know, kind of building all the technology from the ground up and um, SCI just basically said, right, go and hire some people and make it. Uh, so it was a new studio, new technology and the first product that came out. And I think considering that nobody had done it before, really, um, it was it, it, it was it was a, a steep learning curve. But I'm quite pleased with what we managed to do with the tech working on kind of uh, very early CD-ROM drives. You couldn't really guarantee very much. Nowadays, people expect that. Um, uh, you know, streaming from disc is is kind of a given. I mean, everybody understands that you can stream from disc, but in those early days, you really couldn't um, uh, guarantee anything at all. So, we were working with um, uh, computers that didn't uh, kind of come with CD-ROM drives as standard, and we were trying to uh, do kind of fully 3D rendered graphics for the first time. And oh my goodness me, it was it was ambitious to say the least. But um, we did some cool stuff, and I think it was quite it, w- it was quite entertaining to play in the end. Well, speaking of obscure kind of platforms, you did a couple of titles on the Commodore CD-TV, is that right? We did, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I always was a big Amiga fan. I loved my Amiga, but when the CD-TV came along, it was it was like it was going to be an Amiga with a CD-ROM drive bolted onto it, and that sounded like just the best thing ever. But in the end... Uh, it, it just never quite happened, um, and it was it was a shame. But uh, we could see very early on that PC CD-ROM was going to be the big market, so that's the the direction we went. But we did do a couple of um, homegrown products for online entertainment. So we did um, oh Psycho Killer and uh, the Town with No Name, both of which were really kind of tech demo kind of level but uh, a lot of the stuff that that we kind of worked out the tech on that was the the same tech that we then used later on in lawnmower man and the the sequel cyber war as well so it was again a, a kind of a steep learning curve but it helped us to to do better things later on well those two games i'm not sure if you ever um have looked at any of the footage on youtube they've actually got a bit of a cult following um town with no name and Sacred <laughs> really? killer <laughs> they have the, people look at the what is this I can only apologise to everybody involved. Um, no, it was it, it was it was kind of uh, Psycho Killer was um, literally somebody sent us a, a kind of an old VHS camcorder, and we ended up because it was basically you know a, a branching video adventure, very very short, and it involved. Uh, a mad serial killer um, who was armed with a machete and you had to kind of click on hotspots on the screen to decide which way you went and so on and so forth. And we found a country road, blocked the road, had cars kind of skewed across the the road and and had some uh, really nice, lovely, lovely guy, but he was very tall and looked quite scary, chasing chasing people around with a machete. I'm amazed we didn't get arrested. It's just um, uh, goodness knows how, how... how we managed to get away with doing that. So when it came time to do uh, another one, we decided that we would rotoscope it all, and Town With No Name was basically a badly rotoscoped um, comedy western, but it had some fun gags in it as well. Well, um, also working on Lawnmower, as you, Lawnmower Man, as you were saying, it's a massively popular film, so kind of making a game version of that, you must have had to consider certain aspects of the movie and write that into the game. How did that process work? The first one was actually not too difficult because it had uh, clear VR sequences. I mean, it was it was one. I think it was billed as being the first virtual reality film, but actually, uh, a lot of it was live action, and then there was there was occasional little 
you know, very, very cool VR sequences done by, I think, a company called Angel Studios, who were, were just fantastic. Um, and um, we ended up basing as many of our mini games as possible around those VR sequences because, you know, we really loved the 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 idea of their their kind of vision of virtual reality. But what we decided we had to do was was to basically link little kind of short branching video games or mini games, um, link those with some kind of contextual video narrative to make one long seamless animated, well, I say seamless, <laughs> but one long kind of connected animated uh, sequence and journey that you could go through. And this involved us rendering an enormous, an enormous amount of footage. And this was um, uh, back in the days when uh, computers didn't render you know, 3D scenes with reflections very fast or shadows or lights. So we literally had a studio where we had tons of of relatively fast for the time PCs all sitting there. We built a render farm in order to be able to to just kind of crank out all the footage frames that we were doing. And there was a, a, a whole bunch of people, um, some really talented um, uh, artists, many of them in their first job, who were just li- literally sitting there and animating what happens if you go left? What happens if you go right? What happens if you hit this barrier? What happens if you steer around this barrier? Render, animating and rendering loads and loads and loads of frames, which would all then be compressed down into the CD-ROM game. But fortunately, we had some we had some very very talented people there, um, and we were able to put together something which was unlike unlike pretty much any of the the kind of the. Uh, branching movie games that had come before it and when we did the sequel cyber war we'd improved the technology we'd improved our rendering and i think we were able to to do something that although it had limited interactivity as all branching movie type products do uh, it actually was a, you were able to kind of like do some fairly cool stuff um uh considering it wasn't rendered three it wasn't a uh, real-time rendered 3d you were able to do some pretty cool stuff and we captured i think the feel of the movie so i was quite pleased with that well one game i remember that was quite you know groundbreaking for the time and an unusual concept was that gender wars yes <laughs> gender wars was um developed by a team up in sheffield called eighth day uh, and they were a fun bunch of guys. But actually, my abiding memory of Gender Wars uh, has to be the fact that um, at the SCI Christmas party, and I've never, I've never kind of told people this, so unless you were there, you wouldn't know. At the SCI Christmas party, everybody had way too much to drink that year after Gender Wars. Um, and uh, one of the guys from Eighth Day rubbed barbecue chicken, like proper, a handful of barbecue chicken into my hair, um, which... <laughs> I don't know if that's a kind of like a traditional Sheffield greeting, but I responded by giving him a, a traditional SCI kind of um, uh, anointment of an entire bottle of champagne over his head. So that was the kind of um, that was a kind of, uh, uh, of of kind of Christmas party kind of thing that that only uh, a gender wars type game could create. But it was a it was a kind of a cool game, and um, that was a, a kind of an isometric shooter, um, and and it was a it was a lot of fun doing. It, although it was a heck of a long journey to go up to Sheffield and see them every couple of weeks. Well, uh, kind of. Returning to the text adventure style, well, Zorkish style, was a kingdom of magic. And it had some really interesting concepts like NPCs going around and kind of starting fights with each other and just 
working on their own yeah uh, somebody um uh, i know who was involved in in kind of sci at that time did uh, a few years later say you realize you were completely insane trying to do that i kind of i do have to admit it was an insanely big ask because we were trying to create a point and click adventure that was completely open world completely flexible we allowed the characters to go off and do what they wanted you could be playing that game and See, I really like the idea of of going back to the, the those early days with Thorin sitting down and sitting about uh, singing about gold. I love the idea of being able to see things happen in an unexpected way. The only trouble was that to actually test that game um, was was one of the biggest jobs ever undertaken by humankind because frequently you would be you would be kind of like wandering around going to pick up an object that you needed to solve a puzzle and the object would be gone and you had no idea which one of the you know 50 npc characters had taken it um and the character who took it might have got involved in a fight with another character and been killed and then the object could have been dropped and picked up by somebody else and oh it was it was an absolute nightmare to test but it was a that was such an enjoyable product to work on. Uh, a strange little story about that sort of whole Kingdom of Magic era. There was a, I guess in Hollywood, um, there was there was quite a lot of interest with Hollywood stars wanting to be involved in in games. This was the the kind of the beginning of the period where games were were being taken seriously as as a as a kind of an alternative media. Yeah. And a lot of um, agencies were looking at, oh, it'd be you know maybe maybe you know one of our people would be interested in doing you know a bit of game work, um, and we actually when we when we were kind of pitching Kingdom of Magic, we pitched it with two particular voice actors in mind, and um, those those two were William Shatner and Patrick Stewart, and we wanted to bring the two ca- Star Trek captains together and call, the, the game was originally pitched as Bill and Pat's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> um, and that would have been amazing. Can you imagine that if we'd have got them together before Star Trek Generations did? My goodness. Oh, and Shatner but, as well. <laughs> I know. It could have just been so awesome. Um, and um, we, we kind of wrote some dialogue for them, and uh, it, it, it could just have been the best thing ever. But as it turned out, Bill and um, Pat wisely decided um, that this would be a huge amount of work. Um, and in the end, our managing director at SCI, Jane Kavanagh, her next-door neighbor was John Sessions. And um, she was talking about how, talking to him about how this is the huge, ridiculously huge script um, that Ferguson and the team have been working on for this interactive game. And he, um, like the the kind of the, the masochist that he is, said, "Well, I'll give it a go." So we ended up with John Sessions voicing um, uh, like one of the main characters that that you play in this game, and it was a seventy five thousand word script. That's not seventy five thousand words of kind of like a like a a short novel. It was seventy five thousand words of dialogue. Heaven help us! And it took days and days of grueling recording to go through. Like doing four um, movies or something, isn't it? Back to back. <laughs> I know. It was it was insane. I mean, I, so I, I write books now and an average novel's kind of, you know, 100,000 words. 
Um, in, in, in my life, I've probably written kind of a little over half a million words. Um, but this was kind of 75,000 words to be recorded. Um, you know, dialogue, it's insane. Absolutely insane. But somehow we did it. We, we, we had John Sessions. We had Paul Darrow, um, uh, who was Avon in Blake 7, uh, saying some terrible things. Um, and um, it, it, was, it was an amazing experience to, to work on, on that. Um, and a groundbreaking game, which I wish we'd had more time to fix the tech on it because it kind of, it, it didn't, it didn't always kind of behave as intended, but my goodness me, we had some fun editing and recording that script. Well, moving on to uh, what I imagine was probably your first game to get banned. Um, you were involved in Carmageddon after that then. How did you get involved in that project? So at SCI, we were uh, obviously developing some products internally, and we were also working with uh, with other teams to, to do stuff, so working with Eighth Day on Gender Wars. And uh, our studio at the time was based in Southampton. Southampton, obviously fairly close to the Isle of Wight, um, and over on the Isle of Wight, was the world's most anarchic dev team, Stainless. We went over and met up with the Stainless guys um, who were pitching. At that time, it wasn't called Carmageddon. It was like a 3D destruction derby game, but effectively, you know, ramming cars into each other. And Patrick Buckland and um, Neil Barden were were, were the kind of the, the, the two guys running that project. And I just loved everything about their approach to stuff. They picked us up from the ferry in a, an old... Um, kind of uh, 1970s American station wagon, which they bought specifically because it was great for ramming into other cars <laughs> in real life. I mean, these guys didn't just do kind of like um, dangerous driving games. They did stock car racing at the weekends. Proper so, research. <laughs> absolutely. They, they, they were completely mad. Um, and we absolutely loved what they wanted to do with the game. And they were the easiest people you've ever had to work with as a, uh, as a producer. It, it, was, it was great fun. We'd go over each week and we'd sit down and we'd play the game. And I loved every minute of it. The kind of... Um, the dedication that they had to getting things right, though, even extended to the fact that that big station wagon that, that, that Patrick was driving, um, in order to get the, the kind of pedestrian sprites correct for the pedestrians who were being run over, he actually got one of his mates, a guy called Tony, uh, took him down to the car park. There was a car park near the office and repeatedly ran him over at low speed, <laughs> but ran him over with this kind of solid station wagon tank thing with a video camera fitted inside the car so that the, the, the artists would have some decent reference material for what a person looks like when they get run over. And Patrick saw nothing wrong with this, and Tony, apart from a few bruises, saw nothing wrong with this. However, several residents whose houses overlooked the car park called the police and went, there's a guy trying to murder somebody with a car. He keeps running him over. <laughs> so the police were called. Um, there was all sorts of problems. And then the following week when Patrick took the station wagon to his local garage because it had a body-shaped you know, a human-shaped <laughs> hole in the windscreen. He then had to make more explanations for, I promise you, the guy was all right. It was, he didn't mind me running him over. Yes, I ran him over a few times, but it was all fine. And that was, that was working with Stainless, and they were fantastic to work with. Well, the controversy didn't stop there because the game did get banned, didn't it? It, it got banned. It got banned quite dramatically because um, the Daily Mail started talking about it quite a lot, um, and 
there there was actually questions in the House of Commons about, uh, you know, ban this vile game. And the Daily Mail were kind of running a, their campaign. And it was brilliant. I mean, I think um, that game probably would never have had the 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 marketing push no who could have afforded that kind of 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 press and publicity but thankfully our, our the 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 kind of the people who wanted it banned gave it such a boost um and really brought it to the attention of lots of people um and i think i think it's good because as well as being uh, a game which has or was one of the first games to have that kind of dark edgy humor in it um, it's also a fantastic driving game it was really good we used to actually sit there and play it in our lunch hours when we were working on it you know we, we we're, we're kind of like all um, you know jaded developers all sitting around but we still loved playing that game just for fun as it was being developed because it was it was a hugely entertaining and really drivable game so um, yes thank you Daily Mail and thank you um, uh, BBFC and thank you everybody who complained about it because it really helped <laughs> and you're kind of a permanent feature in it with uh, the voice announcements it's my claim to fame actually yeah um, uh, so when I um, talk to people that, that, that kind of are uh, are slightly uh, too young to remember the text adventures. I say, yeah, but I'm the I'm the the original voice guy in in Carmageddon doing the race announcements and stuff. So um, at that point, um, people kind of like go, "Wow, you were in Carmageddon!" So um, that's my claim to fame for people who don't remember the text adventures. <laughs> Could you do one quickly? Um, oh my gosh! Those who are about to get run over, we salute you. Hey. So something like that. So there we go. <laughs> uh, and that's why I don't do voiceovers anymore. So there we go. <laughs> the world of voiceovers is missing that, I think. <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> well, after that, you obviously moved on to uh, Smoking Gun Productions. Um, what was the reason for the move then? Did you just want to try something new? Yeah, basically, um, there was there was a few people um, who were interested in setting up something different. Uh, a few of us from, from Smoking Gun. I, I was very uh, good friends with a guy called Chris Wilde. Smoking Gun was kind of um, uh, Dan Marchant, Rob Henderson, variety of people, but with a, a strong kind of you know SCI connection, and we ended up wanting to do some different things. Um, so we set up as a as a, a small independent studio, and yeah, it was good fun. We were able to we were able to work on some. Uh, anarchic stuff. I do seem to be drawn to the anarchic stuff, don't I? <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I guess probably the, the title that most people remember those early smoking gun days uh, for is um, Space Bastards. So that was, we wanted to do a fun platform game. Uh, and um, it was a great you know, problem-solving platform game, uh, you know, really good fun. But I guess in, in traditional style, I always come back to saying, shall we make it a little bit more rude and shall we make it a little bit more silly and have a bit more fun with it? So we came up with this idea of Space Bastards and it was basically a game about a series of robots, all of whom are based on famous people like Clint Eastwood or Sean Connery or Bruce Campbell, uh, fighting against a, a, a kind of a infinite number of evil robots who all sound like Michael Caine. Um, and... Um, uh, it doesn't really make lo a lot of sense unless you, you kind of see the old YouTube videos of it. But my goodness me, that was a fun game to make and to play. Well, um, your kind of passion for writing as well um, came back in 2012 where you um, did your first novel, Eye Contact. And that was also a really fascinating concept as well. <laughs> well yeah, oddly enough, um, uh, the I, I kind of... I've 
been trying to write a book for ages because back in the text adventure days, I actually started a novel um, because um, way back, the only parody thing that I ever really wanted to do that I never got around to doing was a Star Wars parody. I really wanted to do a Star Wars parody um, and kind of in the late 90s, I finally got round to writing it just as somebody else did a Star Wars parody and a, there was a whole series of parody novels came out. So I never really did anything with it. But it convinced me that writing was something I should go back to. And I was very, very lazy and, and took forever. But then I, I, I kind of finally got round to writing something else. I just thought I'd, I'd have a go at writing a, a, a novel. Um, and I was very, very fortunate that it got picked up. Uh, I, I was able to get an agent and a publisher and a several book deal. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of started started writing. And I think, I think I've been wanting to do this since the very beginning. I think that's why I was kind of um, scrabbling around and doing things like, you know, the Dragon Star trilogy and uh, Robin of Sherlock and things like that. I think always it's been about me wanting to, to just tell stories in an amusing way. Um, or in the case of eye contact, to kind of make people feel a bit edgy or a bit unsettled in a kind of slightly creepy way. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been kind of... Um, uh, a long time getting there, but I'm I'm finally settled as a as a writer of books now, um, and um, yeah, it's going well. How do you find the process of writing books compared to games? Then I mean, n- not having to do player choices and all that. Do you find it is it easier than doing games? It is. It is like I mean, it really is like writing a text adventure, except I can influence what the player does, and that's brilliant because there are so many situations where I can I can effectively construct. Uh, a, a, an emotional scene where I've had to make sure that this happens and that happens and then um, this happens at the perfect moment or the worst moment for, for my central character. Um, and being able to have that kind of um, uh, freedom to manipulate the way that the, the, the reader goes through the story um, is, is amazing to me for, for somebody who's kind of started out having to consider every possibility. But I do find now that um, when I'm plotting a storyline, I do tend to sit there and, and, and almost kind of like go, what now? What now? What now? And I'm kind of trying to, to play my way through the story um, when, I, when I kind of um, start planning out a new, a new book. I'm trying to play my way through the story to see what's the best and worst things that could possibly happen and how can I weave those together into one long narrative. But the, the nice thing, I guess, is that um, unlike those kind of early text adventure days, I now have the benefit of um, editors and copy editors and proofreaders, all of which would have made my life so much easier back in the 80s. <laughs> you kind of did the hard, the hard way around first then, didn't you, really? <laughs> yes, uh, this is definitely easier, definitely, definitely easier. Um, uh, and, um, and also, I don't have to worry about doing those kind of vector graphics either because you don't have to put any of them into the into the books. So thank goodness for that. Well, Fergus, what are you working on at the moment then? What can we expect from you in 2017? Well, I'm still doing games, sort of, um, although uh, nowadays I'm doing puzzle games and apps for, um, uh, for a company called Finblade. We're doing uh, a, whole, a whole series of, of puzzler-branded um, uh, iPhone and uh, iPad apps. Um, and on the book front, I've just finished uh, a kind of a psychological thriller set in London, uh, and I'm currently working on a historical thriller 
uh, set in um, the 1940s and 50s in America and Switzerland. So that was a hell of a research trip to do, but it was it was it was well well worth it. So anything that gives me an excuse to go and sit in diners or visit Switzerland can't, can't be a bad thing. Hard life. <laughs> <laughs> well, Fergus, it's been amazing talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, I hope it all goes well. <laughs>